Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. How are you? I'm doing well enough, I think. Thanks for asking. Excellent. Um, Welcome to episode two, I suppose. I have a couple stories. When I was at Brigham Young University as an undergrad, my wife, whom I met there and married while we were both undergrads, she did some research on behalf of one of her professors, which involved going down to the University of Utah and going into their library and researching the desert alphabet to help him put together a scholarly article on the alphabet. Um, It sort of piqued my interest in phonetic alphabets. And one of the things I found myself doing, one one thing I love doing, Aaron, is reading old things. Yeah. I just think old things are so interesting. And I love watching old films and anything old um, seems in a way a little more honestly human because I can it's hard for me to see past my own reality and this and the stuff that's happening on Twitter, right? Like the world is bubbling around me. And it's hard to see past that. But when you look directly into the past, I feel like it's a little easier to see people. Um, so I love doing that. And one thing I found myself doing was going down into the basement of the library at BYU to where the uh, periodicals were. Periodicals going back decades, in some cases, well over a century. And there was a general interest magazine that I took to reading, which I found very interesting. And it was published in a phonetic alphabet. Uh-huh. If I remember correctly, it was Pittman's alphabet, mm-hmm. which is one of the inspirations for the desert alphabet, though I, I could be wrong about that. And it didn't take long to learn Pittman's alphabet. And I was able to read and enjoy no way. stories from like 125, 30, however many years ago it was. <laughs> and it was in a different alphabet. I mean, it was it was pretty close to English. But it was different enough that it, it just added this extra layer of like, this is cool yeah. to every story. And occasionally there would be words that I couldn't figure out. And eventually I'd realize what they were. And it's like, whoa, we do not say it that way. Uh-huh. No, that's interesting, right? Because you have a record of some pronunciations that are gone. Right. That is kind of a cool thing. Um, because that's something I, I, we talk about this actually when I teach poetry. There are like one of the most famous opening couplets in English literature is come live with me and be my love and we will all the pleasures prove, which I'm going to guess when it was written, love and prove rhymed with each other because all the other couplets rhyme in the poem, Uh but love and prove, they don't rhyme anymore. Which one do you think, which way do you think it was? Was it love or was it prove? I'm going to guess it was love and prove. Oh, so neither. That's my guess, but I actually don't know. I could have looked that up and sounded intelligent, but I actually am not well, sure. Well, I'm going to try and sound intelligent by saying that Shakespeare. Uh, you would be wrong. Oh, however, no. <laughs> however, if it makes you feel better, you can blame your education on that because perhaps you read a particular play of his which quotes this and has uh-huh. the character sing it. And you understandably thought that Shakespeare wrote it because it was in his play. All right. What play was that? Uh, was it As You Like It? It was one of the comedies. I don't, I don't uh-huh. remember. And where was he quoting from? Uh, so the, the poem is called The Passionate um, Shepherd to His Love, and it was written by Christopher Marlowe, mm-hmm. um, of whom Shakespeare admired Shakespeare admired Marlowe very much. When Shakespeare's first plays are essentially ripping off Marlowe before he found his own voice. Is he in part of any of the conspiracy theories? Uh, yeah, you bet he is, um, because people love conspiracy theories. It's funny, like as long as being a playwright was a disreputable reputation, people were happy to have a guy from a less aristocratic background write the plays. But once becoming Shakespeare was the best thing you could be, all of a sudden he wasn't good enough to have written the plays. 
that's great. Nobody in his time thought that Shakespeare didn't write the plays. This is not an idea that came up for hundreds of years later. Like nobody at the time thought that he didn't write the plays. Obviously, he wrote the plays. What a dumb thing to suggest otherwise. Okay, we should interrupt here, dear listener. We don't have a course of action for today's episode. <laughs> yes, I have notes, but I have no outline. That's right. But what are we talking about, Aaron? What's I wanted subject. I wanted to talk about the Desert Alphabet because I learned about it and I just thought it was cool. Right. So, and I wanted to re- return you... to some of our face and hat roots of just instead of talking about hot button issues or interesting, audit, I wanted to do in, interesting oddities. Yeah. Why the heck not? And yeah. and the Desert Alphabet is nothing if not an interesting oddity. So, as as a neophyte to the Desert Alphabet cult, um, what what are your initial impressions? Okay. So, if you have never heard of the Desert Alphabet dear listener, what I would invite you to do is to go and click on the very first link in the show notes. I'm sorry. All right. It's going to be to the Wikipedia page on the desert alphabet, which as is the want for, for it, it is excellent and includes lots of pictures. And if you go and you look, you'll see a series of glyphs that were designed by a person named um, George Watt, George D. Watt, and these glyphs are replacements for English phonemes, right? Phonemes, yeah. <laughs> English <laughs> phonemes, meaning way. Uh, just in other words, uh, it's a pronun- it's a pronunciatable language. That's the idea. Um, it was a terrible idea. <laughs> um, I have a lot of opinions on this, <laughs> but Brigham Young was so excited. Yeah, and I, I really, that's kind of what I really want to talk about today is I have repented of my opinion of Brigham Young and the Desert Alphabet in yeah. the course of thinking about this episode, uh-huh. um, but I want to save that for later. Okay, fantastic. Um, anyway, I actually like the glyphs. I think they're really cool. One, If you read later in the article, there's some critiques of them that it makes the language look kind of, you know, monotone, monotone, monotone I can't be right, monochromatic. Hard to read. Hard Let's to read. That. <laughs> it looks Greek. It looks like it was, it looks like writing in capital Greek letters. And so yeah. the math, the mathematician in my brain, like sees it and panics and starts trying to do derivatives or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a reason that we developed lowercase letters uh-huh, because as it ends up, Mr. Scientist, uh-huh. when we read, we're not reading letters, we're reading words. Um, our mind through the course of reading thousands and thousands of pages has learned the shape of words. And so most of the time, as we're reading, we're just recognizing words by their shape. But when everything's in capital letters, as in the desert alphabet, or on a Roman monument, every word is the same shape. They're all Mm -hmm. equally rectangular. And I mean, they might be different lengths, but essentially they're all just rectangles. But with lowercase letters, you get these ups and downs and things and words take on unique shapes and it's just so much easier to read in fact the designer of this alphabet again george watt who i can't wait to talk about he um kind of wanted to redo it later but never really got a chance to but i, yeah, I was wondering if that was problem. more because if you just wanted to have it easier to write but maybe i get at you what you're saying it'd be easier to read uh yeah i think reading is the main problem um so and when you develop language as a as a baby First, you learn to understand the spoken language, and then you learn to speak. And it's the same way with reading and writing. First, you learn how to read, then you learn how to write. And so um, Brigham Young, one of his uh, one of his reasons he wanted to do this was 
and this is going to tie in later, but he was hoping that we could waste less time in school teaching spelling if everything was just spelled the way it sounded. Mm-hmm. We would save so much time learning how to read and write, and we could spend more time actually learning important stuff rather than spelling. Which is, is that makes sense. It makes sense. And you, but you know, if you could flip a ben switch, Ben Franklin and... thought the same thing and he couldn't pull it off. He couldn't pull it off. What well, did he try to and, do? Well, he he thought we needed a phonetic alphabet also, and he suggested, oh, I don't have this open. I wasn't planning on talking about Ben Franklin, but I believe he like threw out C. He threw out a couple letters that we didn't need, and sometimes he assigned those letters to new sounds mm-hmm. with the idea that it would be easier. But I think it, that if you want to know more, you should maybe consult one of the religious texts by Nicolas Cage. <laughs> 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 yeah <laughs> sorry i don't know if would, that's actually in, in one of those movies but I, well if not i hope that i hope national is. treasure three there's only been two so far right i think there might have been a third one that everybody uh, forgot but at this point it might national be. treasure seven yeah will all be in ben franklin's uh phonetic language <laughs> but so at the I, time let's... yeah oh, go, go ahead, ahead. No, i was you... gonna say at the time of the desert alphabet phonetic languages were all the rage. There were a lot of them being created and promoted with the idea that it would simplify things. And it's going to keep happening. Like George Bernard Shaw, 50 years later, is going to promote a phonetic alphabet um, because the English spelling is nutty and we should just fix it. Unfortunately, English spelling is nutty for really good reasons and you can't just fix it. Oh, okay. Now, listen, that's fascinating. Um, What do you mean? Um, well, I'd be happy to give you some examples. Please. I'm going to spell a word and uh-huh. you pronounce it the way you would pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm, and by the way, not all these examples will prove my point. Some of them will be contradictory, but all of them together, I think, prove my point. Uh, so the word is K-N-I-G-H-T. Uh, that's night. Right. Uh, why is it spelled that way, Aaron? Um, well, it certainly shouldn't be. It should be spelled <laughs> N-I-T-E maybe or, you know... Something. Something. With so a lot it's spelled that way because we used to pronounce it that way. So if you we go used back to far it enough, Knigget? yeah, Knigget, something like that. Uh, I don't know exactly what the GH sound may. It's a sound that we don't have in English anymore. Um, yeah. So it's spelled that way for historical reasons. And you don't really need it spelled that way anymore. And there are times where spelling reforms catch on. Um, Webster, the fellow who made the dictionary in America, mm-hmm. a lot of the differences between English meaning British English and American English spellings are because he changed them in his dictionary because we didn't need the extra U in color, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he made a lot of those changes and they did stick <laughs> because they were simple and they didn't really change that much. Uh, he didn't, I don't think he changed night as far as I know. You know, the software that I work on, this comes up sometimes. Oh okay? yeah. Yeah. Because we have words because it's developed as a collaboration between ourselves and some folks over in the UK. Yeah. And so we have the word parameterize mm. and with a Z or an S, depending on where you are, uh, right? where you and, are it's, yeah. and it's inconsistent. <laughs> and because it's code, right? You have to write it correctly. Yeah. And, I actually, and I actually right now couldn't tell you which way it's written. <laughs> like <laughs> I can't what, even remember. What, that's what a running for bugs is for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm going to spell another word for you. Okay. A-T-O-N-E. A tone. Right. We say a tone. Um, it is a compound word. At, at one. And one. And that was how it was originally pronounced. It was pronounced like the word at and like the word one. That changed over time. Um, and if we change the spelling because of the pronunciation, that 
history of the word would be lost. It would not be apparent that atone means at one. Um, and words are changing all the time, like ration or ration, like which one's right. Like the word is undergoing a shift right now. Ration um, or ration. Oh, okay. Sure. Okay. Uh, state of the union. This is the one where Chicago is. How do you say that state, Aaron? The one where Chicago is. Yeah. Oh no. Am I about to embarrass you? I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Chicago. Capital of Springfield. Uh-huh. Chicago, Illinois. Yes. Illinois. Illinois. That's how Illinois. I say it too. What if you said, um, what if you said that Illinois and then and then you wanted to complete the sentence is where Chicago is? How would you say that? Illinois is where Chicago is. Oh, interesting. Okay. I thought you would say that. I don't say that. Like, what do you say? I say when when Illinois is, is followed by a vowel, mm -hmm. most of the time I say Illinois is where Chicago is. You put the S in. I do. Only when it's followed by a vowel, though. And I don't know if that's. I don't know how common that is, but it's something I do more like, than 50% of the time. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's excellent. All right. Let's keep going. Okay. Um, so uh, Shakespeare, you've heard of him. I have. We were just talking about him. Um, he, we have six different ways that he spelled his own name. Now, oh, okay. Some of these are because he was uh, abbreviating Because he's not it. real. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, sometimes it's because he was abbreviating his name, but even when he spells all the letters, he doesn't spell it consistently. Mm -hmm. um, now, part of that is that spelling wasn't consistent then, but because spelling wasn't consistent, that means people were spelling things phonetically. So all of those things seemed appropriate. Now, of course, something like Pittman's alphabet or Benjamin Franklin's alphabet or the Deseret alphabet is designed to make these things always be the same. But it's also entirely possible that Shakespeare didn't say his name exactly the same way every time. And it's certainly true that other people didn't. Um, I don't know if that's an argument for or against a phonetic alphabet. Here's another one. Um, oh, speaking of British, uh, it's not just spellings that are different, right? Is it schedule or schedule? And should we spell it differently because we say the word differently? Well, that's interesting. So that would lead, I think I see what you're saying. That would lead to a, an actual printed difference in the words right in which it would be more difficult and we, i mean that does happen so far already like jail is spelled very differently in the two languages even though i think it's pronounced the same um but what about the words that are spelled different or pronounced differently are we therefore going to embrace different pronunciations hmm. um when i was in korea as a missionary uh i was on the bus one night we were headed home it had been a long day it was dark outside and we passed by and um i think it was i think it was a karaoke bar if i remember correctly and the name of the place was in neon and I read it and it was, it was in the Korean alphabet, but it was clearly not a Korean word. It was clearly a borrowed English word, but I couldn't figure out what it was. I was like, utopia, utopia, utopia. <laughs> and I finally had to look it up in my dictionary. It's like, oh, it's utopia. Uh, oh, <laughs> um, it would have been, it had been translated into a different alphabet phonetically and i could not figure out what it was um similarly like uh algebra uh used to be pronounced um uh, algebra it was an uh, algebra now al algebra al oh i can't say it algebra no algebra no algebra i can't even say it wrong um <laughs> but it used to be pronounced a different way and this gets to an interesting thing about english like english um spelling isn't just about the sounds. It's a little more complicated than that. So for instance, 
Um, I'm going to say a noun, and I would like you to say the exact same sequence of letters as a verb. I'll give you the first one as an example, all right? So if I say record, that's a noun, you could say record, mm -hmm. which is a verb. Mm -hmm. And they're the same word. They're spelled the same. They have very tightly similar meanings because they have this, you know, they're the same word essentially, but they're used differently and we pronounce it differently. So how about conduct? Conduct. Um, attribute. Uh, attribute. Um, object. Object. I object. Uh, <laughs> and the last one is combat. Oh, combat. Yeah, and there are lots of these in English. So it's just the stress. Uh, yes, but because the stress changes, oftentimes, not in every single example I share it, but oftentimes in English, when you change the stress, you change the vowel. Um, so, for instance, in record and record, um, record versus record, all four vowels are different in those two words. Mm -hmm. E changes to E, and then the more common example is like the O changes to the schwa sound, the uh, sort of the uh, the, the no, the, the, the vague, vowel, meaningless vowel schwa. Um, so are you supposed to, now maybe that's an argument for a phonetic alphabet, that they'll be spelled differently when they're pronounced differently, but I think it just leads to... Well, it leads I mean, to more words in that case. Yeah, it leads to more words. Is it actually better? Like, I don't know. The advantage to a spelling system that has grown up evolutionarily is that even though it will have little weird things, like we have little weird animals on planet Earth, generally it holds together and it makes sense. And there's there's reasons for it that we feel deep in our native speaker souls. It makes it hard for non-native speakers, for sure. But a lot of the reasons things are spelled a certain way still are actually salient and do exist deep in our, our reptile English-speaking brain. Mm -hmm. I don't, that metaphor was bad, but... <laughs> The point is, like, it's not totally random. And that's part of the reason why none of these caught on, because, you know, you can change, uh, you can drop the UE on catalog and nobody's confused. But when you start really changing things, um, all of a sudden, night and night and night are all spelled the same. But they're not the same word. And is that actually better for reading? It's debatable. It is and, debatable and interesting because you're right. It would be, it would, you would have to get it from context in that case. Yeah. And sometimes context is not clear. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes you can't tell. Uh, it could be either. And that drives me crazy when that happens in modern English. It would be way worse if we had a phonetic alphabet. Huh. And so, let's not forget that people have different accents. So are they all going to be spelling words a different way? Well, this is one of the things that I found as I was reading the article. Because reading this article on the Deseret Alphabet immersed me in a, I don't want to say culture, but because that's not the right word, a field, right? A discipline mm. of English. Discipline, yeah. That I wasn't, I just was not familiar with, right? So I'm reading through it and it talks about um, wine, wine. Oh. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah. Right. And so it's talking about in the Deseret edition of the Book of Mormon, which Let's just pause for a second. The Deseret Alphabet edition of the Book of Mormon is a thing that exists, and only 250 copies of it were printed, right? Wait, no, that can't possibly be right, because my grandmother had one. That okay. would be absurd if there was one out of 250. Well, let me go ahead and find this, find the reference again and mention it. No, no, I, I, I'm, my, I'm trying to think this through. My guess is there must have been 
another printing like later for hobbyists like in the 1940s or something i don't know but okay well i'm off by, i'm off by a bit here so okay okay the alphabet was <laughs> first of all um this is a great quote according to beasley many have written that interest in the alphabet died with um brigham young <laughs> this however is not true the alphabet was already regarded as a failure during young's time <laughs> i don't know who wrote that what wikipedia article wrote that on but that's a solid burn <laughs> But yeah, only 500, only 500 copies of, wow. of the full Book of Mormon translated into the desert alphabet sold for $2 each. Oh, cool. Yeah. And so if you have one, then that's pretty good. My cousin Alan has it now, I believe. He, as a kid, taught himself. My, my grandmother had the, actually, maybe, are we talking about the full Book of Mormon? Because I don't think hers was the full Book of Mormon. It was uh, just an excerpt. This one says the, says the full Book of Mormon. Yeah. Oh, okay. So this was one of the smaller ones. It was just like, I don't know, first Nephi through Enos or something. There was one and also the uh, that was for first Nephi through Omni. That was a uh, Okay. I a think version. that's the one she had. And mm -hmm. she also had one that was like, uh, sort of like a first grade primer. Um, and he taught himself to read the Desert Alphabet. And I was always kind of jealous. And But that's why I didn't like when and it came time to distribute the books, I felt that he he had earned them. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the thing I was saying about wine and wine is I was reading this article and I found myself learning about things called mergers, which I had no idea existed. So it was just interesting to learn about this discipline. Right. So wine and wine. So the difference between wine and wine, <laughs> which apparently they say in other parts of the country, but yeah, uh, I've I I have a hard time saying that at all, mm -hmm. let alone just having it come out naturally. <laughs> yeah, I clicked on the link and it was parodied in Family Guy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like when somebody makes fun of somebody else. It was also parodied their... in Brooklyn Nine Nine. There you go. <laughs> as Captain Holt says, "Whoop!" As whoop, and Jake Peralta right. is trying to get him to say it correctly, but he can't. He can't. He has to say whoop. Yep. So the word wherefore was written in one way with H, which they which means they did not exhibit the wine wine merger. Anyway, I just thought this was cool. Yeah. I mean, it's a political problem at this point, right? So speaking of the Korean alphabet, which is an excellent alphabet, um, we, if we were a different podcast, we could do an episode on it. Well, I but know that it was designed as well. It was, replaced, it was designed very right? intentionally. Yeah. yeah. It's a and, replacement for some other alphabet. Um. Well, I think as a replacement for Korean for Chinese characters, ah. um, which are not phonetic at all. And it's not that <laughs> old, right? That, uh, well, it's a few hundred years old. Okay. Um, yeah. But eventually what they've decided is that the Seoul dialect is the standard pronunciation. And sort of like how the French do, they have an official body which decides what words are official Korean words. And that's how they solve the problem. But it does, like politically speaking, you're essentially saying Seoul English, or excuse me, Seoul Korean is better than your Korean, uh, other parts of the country. And I maybe, I, I guess in Korea, that's worked fine. Uh, but can you imagine in the United States? Hmm. And there are other English speaking countries. Yeah, that's true. I mean, people are proud of their accents here in the US. Yeah. So it's, it's doomed to failure, I think. Interesting. Okay. So, okay. So I think that you're, okay, go ahead. You made the point earlier on where you said that you couldn't ever, that we have different spellings in English on purpose, right? And so yeah. the summary of that point is because it gives you more words. Well, because it's functional is uh -huh. what I would say. It has function and yeah, it is a hassle. And I don't know anybody who hasn't had a hard time spelling at least 
a hundred words in English, right? English is a difficult language um, graphically for all these reasons, but the reasons they persist is because these weird things about English spelling are functional. They serve a purpose and there are a number of different purposes they serve, but that's why you can't just say like, this is dumb, let's get rid of it and replace it with a phonetic alphabet because a phonetic alphabet creates a whole new set of problems that we would then have to accept. And why would we change the problems we're used to for new problems? Okay, well, that's exactly what Brigham Young tried. Um, so yeah. it was in the early, it was in the Utah settlement, right? And it's really about the, the utopianism and the, um, you know, reform, utopianism, <laughs> and the kind of like idealism, right, of the yeah. Utah Valley in the 1850s, right? And this yes. was one of the ideas. Um, so Brigham Young heard a talk by somebody about this kind of phonetic alphabet and then commissioned George D. Watt to actually make it. And then if you go and you read George D. Watt's Wikipedia page, holy, it's like, it's a roller let's coaster take, of emotion. Let's take that tangent real quick. Why don't you tell us about George D. Watt, then we'll get back to Brigham Young and the alphabet and University of Deseret and whatever else we I'm want just to talk gonna, about. I'm just going to hit the highlights. Look, we've talked about before about... Um, Okay, I just, let me just, I'll just show a couple of the highlights because it was a real roller coaster reading this. Um, 19, uh, so 1812 is when he was born. He was the um, first, this is what's great. He was the first Latter-day Saint convert from the British Isles. Whoa. Right? Good for him. Yep. He was baptized a saint by, uh, by Heber C. Kimball. And he won the right to be the first official British convert by winning a foot race against eight others. So that's the first wow. part that I really I appreciated. This, I totally forgot about this story. <laughs> I skipped the beginning of the article. I just read like the last half of it. And I, yeah. I've heard that story. That's about him. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Isn't that great? He raced a it. bunch of other people so he could <laughs> be the first Mormon from the British Isles. I love it. All right. So anyway, so he went and um, got baptized. Um, and then with about with with some other people came to the U.S. was sent back to England as a missionary, right? And that's where he learned Pittman shorthand, right? Which is wait, you said that's the one that you learned? Uh, no. So Pittman shorthand and Pittman's phonetic alphabet are two different inventions. Ah, okay, okay. And I know we kind of breezed by the fact that you learned this. I'm going to come back to to this topic later okay it really All wasn't right. that hard <laughs> okay well <laughs> so okay Pittman shorthand so this was a way of writing writing quickly as a clerk right and then he was a port he's a reporter for the Deseret News and a private clerk from Brigham Young and he published the Journal of Discourses sermons right and um that's like where we get most of Brigham Young's writings is that true or false I don't know about most but certainly a significant percentage yeah, 26 volume collection of public sermons. Um, remained the primary editor until 68. So he was appointed to a committee to do the phonetic al alphabet, right? Yes. The Deseret alphabet. He was a strong promoter of the, of the alphabet and um, worked on it. Then he was disfellowshipped. And he joined the Godbeite church. Yeah, the Godbeites. Which... Now this rabbit hold me big time, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I've gone on some trips through alternate Mormonisms. Before. Okay. Yes, this is an alternate Mormonism. They were called originally called the Church of Zion, or they're defunct. William Godby, right? 
and they embraced all belief systems like spiritualism and mysticism, right? And so he was a firm believer in it and was so his whole life until, and he tried to come back to the church and um, they never let him back in. But, pre, but um, I think, uh, what is it? President John Taylor made sure he was buried in his temple robes. Oh, but, oh wait, wait. But you skipped the part where, this is my favorite part of the article, where he goes to John Taylor and says, if, if I don't die in full fellowship with the church, that's on you, man. <laughs> that's on you. And so John Taylor, when he died, came and made sure he was buried in his temple robes. Like, oh, it's like deathbed repentance, only it wasn't the guy who died who was repenting. Okay, so you know how a roller coaster how it has a kind of an awesome like twist at the end just to make you remember yes okay like I many know. early <laughs> like many early latter-day saints watt practiced pearl marriage he had six wives and one of his wives jane brown was his half-sister they shared a mother <laughs> mary ann wood yeah how about that oh man everywhere from a foot race to plural marriage married to a half-sister to um, designing the Deseret Alphabet, this article on George D. Watt has it all. And it's short. to whoever wrote it. You could print it on a single piece of paper. Yep. Um, <laughs> anyway, it didn't work. Nobody wanted to do it. Didn't work. They tried to teach it in schools. They even printed some coins with it. Here's a picture of a $5 gold piece with the inscription, Holiness to the Lord in the Deseret Alphabet on it. I like the look of it. And one of the reasons I like it so much is it's so weird. No, it's awesome. I totally love it. When we did Monsters and Mormons um, with Peculiar Pages, which is a great book and everyone should buy a copy, uh, we we put a little uh, Easter egg on the cover in the Desert Alphabet. So look for that. Okay, excellent. Um, I think I actually still have your copy on the shelf, and I keep forgetting to look. Oh, at did it. I, I lend will, it to you? I will. I will look for. It. I will yeah. look for that Easter egg. It's yeah. on my intention to read it. Um, uh, yeah, one of ahead. the problems, though, that we haven't talked about is that it was prohibitively expensive because they had to make all their own type. With other type, you can get mass-produced type from foundries in you know other parts of the country and the world. If you want to and to print stuff in the desert alphabet, you have to print your own, you have to create your own type. That yeah. is an expensive, difficult, time-consuming, labor-intensive, or intensive process. It's expensive. You know where the word cliche comes from? Cliche? No, I don't. It comes from the from the sounds the 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 type machines would make. Cliche, cliche. Really? That's why. That's what fun. I heard. Is that true? I hope that's true. I'm that's not going to look it up. Until it's a, it's a QI. Over, or maybe never. Oh, it was on QI? Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll trust them. Yeah, they're, they're on television. Good. You know, we're a fairly public domain podcast. Why not just play the clip? Slongmaker. Yes. I have a theory that this might be a gentleman who makes foundation garments for ladies. And it's those very thin things which are crossed between a thong and dental floss. <laughs> oh, I know just what you mean. Yes. An arse floss. Yes. Of the oh, yes, horrible, yes. Uh, the person cleaning it is the one you feel sorry for. No, flan <laughs> actually is a corruption of the French word flan, as in flan. It, it means a heavy base. That's um, and it's actually from the word printing. What the flong made was actually, it was because it was solid, the Greek for solid is stereo, and it was known as stereotyping. Because you were making the same thing each time, you made a stereotype. And oddly enough, the noise the ink made was rendered as cliché. The, the noise, cliché, noise that made when you rolled the ink. So both stereotype and cliché, which sort of mean the same thing, are both printer's terms.
So, so literally a cliche is is made by stereotype. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we're only here to be quite interesting. We don't expect to be rolling on the floor, barking like a seal, vomiting with laughter at that thought. But <laughs> I do hope you will take it home, wrap it in a little parcel of lavender paper and store it in the bottom heart of your drawer. I'm, I'm worried I'll get to... it wrong. Yeah, I'm, okay. I'm planning to slightly misremember it. They had a great um, a moment in their show about 10 years into their show where they plotted as a function of time, the degradation of facts, right? Ooh. And so facts have a half-life according to this one study. And so they plotted it oh over my. all of their seasons and it falls off, of course. And so you go back 10 years and you could say with reasonable confidence that like 60% of the stuff they said was false, right? Wow. So we're about four years into our show. So that puts us, I don't know, like in the 80 to 90% accurate. That's for our so first interesting. Seasons. Yeah, yeah. And of course, because the if the show is point-based, they retroactively award a huge number of points to the one guy <laughs> who's been on all the episodes. <laughs> wow. I haven't uh, seen that show in ages, but it's great. I, I recommend Q it to people. I love QI. Hey, uh, yeah, it's a family favorite. So, okay. Um, what else we got? So, the, the yeah, so it didn't work. Um, it's, it's gorgeous. It's very weird. Um, it's not, it's, um, it, it's actually, I tried to, so me and the missus sat for a few minutes trying to, to sound out one of the words mm. in it, you know, and we came up with the word with that. It said faith. Right. And we were pretty proud of ourselves, but it was a bit annoying to do it. And I didn't, wouldn't want to do more, do it more than, more than that. But you actually did this with the, um, the Pittman. Yeah, but go up to that? the info box at the beginning of the Desert Alphabet article, and there's a link to Pittman's alphabet. Yeah. Uh, the English phonotypic alphabet, and look at, click on its, you can see that it is much closer to actual English. Oh, okay. I believe this is the one that I learned, but I might be wrong. It might have been a different one. It's been a long time. Um, okay, this isn't the one I, I remember with lots of little curly cues. That would probably yeah. be the... Um... Yeah, I think it was this one, but I might be wrong. Stenographic language. Might have been a variation. Um, well, it's still pretty cool. It's still pretty cool, and it's a lot easier than the Desert Alphabet. <laughs> but this gets to why I didn't. I used to like hold a grudge against Brigham Young. Should we move into that now? Yeah, go ahead. So, uh, as you pointed out, that was hard for you and the misses. But a baby, right, who grows up learning this alphabet should have no trouble. And they in taught fact, it in schools, right? They tried. Yeah, it was. I, I, I don't know that I go so far as to say that they taught it in schools. They attempted to. Um, but what happened was it was hard, right? And it's not like your parents could help you because they didn't know it either. One of the one of the thoughts was that this would be good for immigrants because everyone could learn this phonetic alphabet and be super easy. But I don't know if you've ever met an immigrant, but sometimes they have accents. And so the whole phonetic thing doesn't Ooh, necessarily work. Of course Having not. standardized spelling rather than phonetic spelling uh, is helpful. Now they were working towards standardizing the phonetic spelling, but those things are kind of contradictory. But anyway, the point is one of the ideas Brigham Young had was that if everybody learns this in a generation or two, nobody will be able to read anything that's not in the desert alphabet. And thus uh -huh. we can control them and what they see. Uh -huh. And so this is something that I, this is my grudge against Brigham Young. Cause I don't, I don't like that. I don't like the sound of that at all. But I am repenting of this because of an essay I read in the past week by Eugene England. And if I could delay for just a moment, I'd just like to say that uh, our sister podcast in the Dialogue Podcast Network, uh, the Dialogue Book Report, they just had an interview with Christine Hagland, who wrote a new book about Eugene England. 
who is the f- okay tell me I'll, let I'll me talk it. about eugene england there's also i'm also reading a biography of eugene england by terrell gibbons right now eugene england is a fascinating character in late 20th century mormon history he's a theologian he's a thinker he's just a really good person and he got in all sorts of trouble trying to do the right thing um this actually maybe it's a different episode but uh, Eugene England is an interesting guy. He's one of the founders of the Association for Mormon Letters. He's one of the founders of the di- of Dialogue itself. And just a fascinating guy. And he had a really generous spirit. And I love reading his essays because he... Actually, I think... Haven't we talked about his essay, Why the Church is as True as the Gospel, before? Hmm, Does that maybe. ring a bell? I think we have. Anyway, this essay is called On Bringing Peace to BYU with the Help of Brigham Young. So uh, I'd just like to share a couple things that I learned about Brigham Young from this essay that, that makes me feel that I had been quite unfair to him. Let me start by pointing out that one thing Brigham Young felt strongly was that all knowledge belongs to our faith. This is also a core tenet of face and hat doesn't matter if it's science, doesn't matter if it's history. If it's true, it's part of our understanding of our faith as Latter-day Saints. And Brigham Young felt this way very strongly. One thing he said, which I think is great, we are only just approaching the shores of a vast ocean of information that pertains to the physical world, to say nothing of that which pertains to the heavens, to angels and celestial beings. To him, like whether it's about angels or whether it's about space or whether it's about crystallography, it's all part of Mormonism. And I like that. But let me share let me share a couple of things that he said. This is probably the key line I want to read by Brigham Young. And then I want to read a little synopsis of Brigham Young's thinking by Hugh Nibley. I have a lot of things underlined in this essay, and maybe others will come up as we talk about it. But to introduce it, I want to share these two quotations. So this first is from Brigham Young. I, wait, before we go uh, into the quotation, Aaron, the, the Greek myth of the bed of Procrustes, does, does that ring a bell? It does not. So the bed of Procrustes is this bed. And if I remember the story correctly, uh, Procrustes would have guests to his bed. And if they were too tall, he would cut off part of their body so they fit the bed. And if they were too short, he would stretch them so they would fit the bed. Mm-hmm. Not the best kind of bed. My recommendation is change the bed, not use body. <laughs> but that's a metaphor that Brigham Young's going to draw on here. Brigham Young says, the world is before us. Eternity is before us and an inexhaustible fountain of intelligence for us to obtain. Every man, and more particularly my immediate associates who are with me daily, know how I regret the ignorance of this people, how it floods my heart with sorrow to see so many elders of Israel who wish everybody to come to their standard and be measured by their measure. Every man must be just so long to fit their iron bedstead or be cut off to the right length. If too short, he must be stretched to fill the requirement. Brigham Young says here that it's the job of the elders of Zion to stretch. It's not our job to make everybody stretch to what we think Mormonism is. Like, yeah, that's that's not how it works. Ever, there are lots of different standards and lots of different ways to be. Um, now the quotation from Hugh Nibley. Hugh Nibley read Brigham Young more widely and deeply than you or I or probably anybody who listens to us, I'm going to guess. And Hugh Nibley said, no man ever spoke his mind more frankly on all subjects all Brigham Young's days, he strove to communicate his inmost feelings, unburdening himself without the aid of notes or preparation in a vigorous and forthright prose that was the purest anti-rhetoric. It has been common practice to dismiss any saying of his which one disapproves, and he makes no effort to please. By observing 
that he said so many things that he was bound to contradict himself and therefore need not be taken too seriously all the time. I admit this has been my opinion at times, Aaron. No view could be more ill-advised, he nibbly goes on, for there never was a man more undeviatingly consistent and rational in thought and utterance. Granted that Brigham would admonish the saints to wear overcoats one day, so to speak, and the next day turn around and advise shirt sleeves. The element of scandal and confusion vanishes if we only get the main idea, which is that it is not the rule book or the administration, but the weather that prescribes the proper dress for the day. All the other apparent contradictions in Brigham Young's teachings likewise vanish when we grasp the main idea behind them. So I have repented in assuming that Brigham Young, um, that the right way to see him through the lens of the desert alphabet is someone who is only concerned with some sort of dystopian utopia where all information is controlled by the central power and you have no literacy in other languages that only the desert alphabet is, you know, it's a way to control people. And I suspect it's more complicated than that. For a man who said that all knowledge belongs to the saints, the idea that he would just want to cut everybody off is inconsistent. And I probably don't fully understand his point of view on this topic. That's where I stand today. It's very, it's, that makes sense. It's nuanced. It's uh, an acknowledgement of the fact that we are looking backwards through history, right? Yeah. There are, um, there is a section on other motives in the Wikipedia article that describes what you are talking about, right? Oh, I didn't, I don't think I read that part. Yeah. And one of the first, the first, um, so, right. So originally the alphabet was created to simplify the spelling of English words for the benefit of, uh, benefit of children and English as a second language learners, right? As you were saying, yes. there were lots of immigrants um, in Utah from various European, well, mostly European countries. Pretty much European. Yeah, but they didn't all speak English, right? Right. They spoke things like Swedish. Okay, so the first theory, the other motive as to why, so the, the first nefarious motive for the Deseret Alphabet, which has been largely dismissed, as it says here, was to make secrets, right? To make a code that only Mormons would know about, right? Mm. And so um, there's a reprint in a New York newspaper, right? And it says the new Deseret Alphabet is completed and a fount of Pika type has been cast in St. Louis. Specimens of the type are published in the St. Louis papers, but they are unproducible in types that common people use, right? The eucasses, mm -hmm. um, right? I had to Which, look that word up just now. What is it? Oh, it is a like a, an edict. Uh, I believe the word comes from Russian. It's what a czar. It's like a czar's edict. Okay, that makes sense. The eucasses or the edicts of Brother Brigham will hereafter be a sealed letter, literally to Gentile eyes, right? Anyway, mm -hmm. this is nonsense. They published a key to the dictionary in every article. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you so could argue that maybe in a hundred years that was the idea, but. Well, that was what the next point Maybe. was, right? Yeah. Is that um, they were, um, this is from the advantage, this is an article from the Desert News, right? In 1868, right? Mm -hmm. If our community were situated as others are, it might be quick stoic to attempt the introduction of this reform among us with the hope of carrying it into practical operation. But our position is unique. We are united. Some 
have an idea that if a child be educated in the system of spelling and writing by sound, it will be a detriment to it in learning the present system. If they could find no better reading than much of the miserable trash that now obtains extensive circulation, it would be better if they never learned to read the present orthography. In other words, the present writing system, right? Yeah. And this here is referring to things like um, Penny Dreadfuls, pulp magazines and such. You know, Brigham Young was very pro-literature, but he was very anti-novel. Right. And it's continuing the quote, in such a case, ignorance would be blissful. The greatest evils which now flourish and under which Christendom groans are directly traceable to the licentiousness of the press. <laughs> licentiousness right? is a fun word. <laughs> it's a great word, right? And um, yeah, but I, and I could see where thinking like this would be, um, you know, would make you go, well, I mean, this would lead to the control of the language, but I think I agree with you. I think that it, it's just much simpler to think that Brigham Young heard a talk about how phonetic languages are awesome, how they get rid and, you know, wanted to make one. <laughs> I mean, people, they are cool. People, people generally, this. people generally aren't nefarious. No, I could just people, state that. <laughs> yeah, most people's motivations are good um they are gorgeous and by the way the the pheno the phenomes that can't be the right word close enough the glyphs are in unicode and what and they that are. means that they're forever i wanted to talk about this a little bit okay if you don't know what unicode is everybody has heard the word unicode but it's worth i just want to talk about it a little bit because i wanted to get a bit of computer science in, into the into the episode so the original um way of encoding letters into mm -hmm. computers Eric is using what character set? Uh, I'm going to guess ASCII. That's right. So ASCII has 256 characters because it's eight bits to the power of eight, starting with the character 40 and working your way up through the um, letters. You get the you have each number assigned to a letter, right? And right. those are the standard uppercase and lowercase English letters. Um, of course, it doesn't work with with um, in, with anything else, right? When you start having like Arabic or Greek or, you know, math or anything. And so instead, mm -hmm. what they came up with was Unicode. And Unicode has space for a lot of characters. Okay. The standard, Lots. which is maintained by the Unicode Consortium, defines 144,762 characters, covering 159 modern and historic scripts, as well including as the including the I, desert alphabet. And so I'm still impressed by that. Like it is like an obscure historical footnote, and yet it's and Unicode. it's forever. If yeah. the human race persists for 10,000 years from now, right? And Unicode is still kicking around in the computers, the desert alphabet will persist it's there you can't get rid of it those characters <laughs> those 40 characters have numbers assigned to them permanently and the desert alphabet is available and you can get a font and you can just type with it i've done it myself i think that's really cool i think it's cool that a bit of mormon history right persisted into the national the the, the international standard for writing yeah. Even though it's not used by anybody, it's still here. It's it's, it's only <laughs> used by mostly Mormon weirdos, but those are my people. So <laughs> you can read Pride and Prejudice in the Desert Alphabet now. Like, who doesn't? You know, why who not? Doesn't want, who doesn't want to do that? Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I can. But I appreciate wanting to do that. Um, yeah, 
I mean, it's it's still easier than doing it in Klingon. If you or or um, yeah, that's true. If you're going to do your own language, what would you do it in? If you were uh, going to make a, a, la a language, would you be phonetic or would you not be? Well, I think it makes sense to start phonetic. Yeah. But I think it's also makes sense to respect the evolution of sound and speaking and the way people use the language. Yeah. And so language will adjust as time goes on. I mean, um, here's, here's a weird example of how things happen. Uh, you're familiar with an apron that you might wear when you're baking a cake. Yes. So the originally the word for that was napron. Mm -hmm. And, and so a napron over the years slowly changed into an apron. Uh -huh. Um, just kind of <laughs> crazy, <laughs> right? Like it's yeah, fun. That cool. things, like butterflies are called butterflies because they used to be called uh, flutterbys and the, the letters just moved around. It's <laughs> awesome how language adapts and changes and, and spelling is one of those things that adapts and changes, but largely it, it is the way it is because it is more functional than not most of the time. Although I'm sure we could find exceptions, but generally speaking, evolution, you know, it's survival of the fittest. And I think it's the same for language. Um, Flutterby sounds like a Pokemon. <laughs> it probably is. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you um, ever, do you know anything about Esperanto? Uh, I know a little bit about Esperanto. I just found out a friend of mine runs the, uh, the local Esperanto club in Utah Valley. Oh, that's pretty cool. She used to live um, in El Cerrante, just up the road from us. That's where she grew up. Well, I think it's cool as we were talking about a constructed language. That's what this is. Yeah. Esperanto is a constructed language. It's, it's actually constructed. It's spoken by like 100,000 people, like and they're yeah. native speakers of it, people who grew up speaking of it. But one thing that I like about it is that it's not, it, I don't remember if it's phonetic or not, but it has um, modules, like small words mm -hmm. that can be built into big words. And so you can kind of, uh, you, can, you can have fewer total words, but describe more things. Maybe kind yeah. of like how German has a lot of compound words. So I thought that was cool. The reason I know about it is from the book series, The Stainless Steel Rat. Oh, yeah, I know. I've read the first of those. Yeah. So um, J Slippery Jim DeGriz, criminal mastermind, speaks Esperanto. And like everybody, everybody does in that universe, just because I think the they author, Harry Harrison, was convinced that this is just going to be the future. That it would work. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a pretty decent attempt. Um, my understanding is it's largely used now um not necessarily as a communicating language but as a tool to um i don't know learn other languages or something i'm not exactly well, sure. it's used to, well the idea was it'd be a good second language right because it's easy yeah. to learn if you have it's like an an average you know romantic yeah. language as it were and another sort of related phenomenon is uh, lost languages that have been recreated so for instance hebrew was lost and now it's the national language and the native language to many people who live in Israel. What does it mean it was um, lost? Uh, nobody spoke it. Nobody natively spoke Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And when they decided to create the nation of Israel, they recreated it. And now it's a functioning modern language. Where did they recreate and, it from? Uh, well, there's a lot of historical texts of Hebrew. And so... Do they know they got the pronunciation right? Uh, well, you never know for sure, right? I mean, it's hard yeah. even for us in a language that never died out to be sure we got the pronunciation right, so to speak. Yes, it um, and the same thing happens, like like um, the Native Americans from the Channel Islands recreated their language from a single woman who was recorded in the 1800s and like was, and they've recreated the language best they can. Like, um, it's kind of cool how things can persist. All right. I love it. All right. There you go. There's our random ramblings for today. Um, we hope you enjoyed 
<laughs> learning about the desert alphabet. Um, Face and Hat is brought to you by the Dialogue Podcast Network. We're members of it. We're excited about it. You can find me at Aaron Brewster on Twitter and Eric at T-H-M-A-Z-I-N-G. You can follow the podcast itself at Face and Hat or go to faceandhat.com for the show notes. You can also find our Discord server if you want to in the, sh- in the show notes and join. We'll probably be putting spoilers in there as we plan future episodes. So <laughs> if, you, if you want to help us do some research sometimes, maybe that would be a place to do it. Maybe yeah. Twitter. Maybe Twitter is better for that. <laughs> and we'd like to thank, um, again, we'd like to thank, um, okay, and we'd like to thank uh, Daniel Foster-Smith for our music. Yeah. Bye. Bye.